This is episode number 129 with Gabrielle Cousins. Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best-selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl and Open Wide, and I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Each week, I'll be getting up close and personal with thought leaders from around the globe, as well as your weekly dose of motivation so that you can create epic change in your own life and become the best version of yourself possible. Are you ready, beautiful? Dr. Gabriel Cousins is the author of 11 internationally acclaimed books, including Spiritual Nutrition and Creating Peace by Being Peace. Known worldwide as a spiritual teacher and the leading expert in live plant source nutrition, Dr. Cousins functions as a holistic physician, psychiatrist, family therapist, and cutting-edge researcher on healing diabetes naturally. He holds an MD from Columbia Medical School, a doctorate in homeopathy, and diplomas in Ayurveda, clinical acupuncture, and holistic medicine. His multicultural background as an ordained rabbi, an acknowledged yogi, and a four-year Native American sun dancer adds insight to his whole person enlightenment teachings. Dr. Cousins is the founder and director of the Tree of Life Foundation and the Tree of Life Center in the US. And in his book, There is a Cure for Diabetes, Dr. Cousins presents his center's program for reversing diabetes naturally. And in today's episode, we chat about his journey from having visualizations and meditating at age four to where he is today, the life-changing experience that happened to him when he was 16, what is whole person enlightenment, what is spiritual nutrition, how to decrease depression by 400%, how to be enlightened, The big question, do plants have a soul and consciousness? This is something that I've wanted to know for a very long time. How to understand and find out your mind-body constitution. The three powerful questions to ask yourself to uncover your unique mind-body constitution. The optimal amount of protein we need per day. How to know if we are hydrated enough. The biggest requirement we need as we age why we all, not just vegans, need a B12 supplement, why we need to eat organic and support organic farming, the six foundations of a spiritual life, the sevenfold path to enlightenment, plus so much more. And for everything that we mention in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes and that is over at melissarambrosini.com forward slash one, two, nine. And before we dive into today's episode, I want to read the review of the week. And this comes from Di Greener. And she says, this is a life-changing podcast. Thank you, Melissa, for coming into our lives. You are truly a blessing to this world. I've been listening to your podcast for the past year and have loved them all. All the speakers have been incredibly inspirational And the information has been invaluable and is making me the best version of me. I have read all the show notes and purchased many of your guests' books or subscribed to their blogs with the purpose of educating and developing myself. At the same time, I am sharing the fact that I listen to your podcasts and helping others to develop themselves too. Life-changing stuff. Thanks, Melissa. Thank you so much, Di. That is so beautiful, and I'm so glad it all deeply resonates. And yes, the guests are freaking epic, and I too have purchased most of the books as well. I love learning. I'm a student for life, and I'm so glad you are too. And if you want to be the review of the week for next week, head on over to iTunes and leave me a review now. And without further ado, let's bring on the amazing Dr. Gabrielle Cousins. (music) 
Gabriel, it is so great to have you here. I'm so excited for this conversation. But before we dive in, can you please share what you had for breakfast this morning? I didn't eat anything for breakfast. I, I had some herbs. I usually don't eat much breakfast. What I often eat for breakfast is a little bit of goldju berries and a touch of tahini for flavor. That's my average breakfast, but today I didn't actually eat the way it, it broke down. Mm, I love tahini. So good. Basically, don't eat very much of breakfast. That's it. You just got it. You just heard what I did. Yeah, beautiful. Now, back in 2010, I actually ended up in hospital, both physically and mentally, very unwell and unhappy. But before that, I was living totally unconsciously. And I ended up in hospital and that was the rock bottom that I needed in order to really get me on my path and to wake up. And from that moment, I began, you know, waking up in my consciousness journey, not only with food, but, you know, I started to become more conscious in every area of my life. So can you tell us about your journey and how you got to where you are today doing the amazing work that you're now doing? It's a subtle journey. I actually began tuning into this journey when I was four years old. And when I was, by the time I was eight, I was really having visions. And I think they were the Essenes and some of the mystical Indian teachings like Sai Baba of Shirdi in India, and also Avraham. So I was getting in, and also Crazy Horse. So I was having visions of people. I had no clue of who they were. Yeah, I mean, no clue. I was raised in a kind of a middle-class suburban outside of Chicago in the 50s. It's like, not a clue. But nevertheless, these visions are coming. I definitely sense them as spiritual things. And nobody really understood, and I actually realized not a really good idea to share because I didn't get it, and I thought, that's a little strange. When I was 16, my older brother was killed in a car accident. He and I were very, very close, and I spontaneously spent a lot of time in his room and really began to meditate. Now, I didn't know what meditation was. Nobody ever taught me to meditate. But I would go in these long periods of kind of mystical oneness. And because I had this science part of me, I was also building a heart-lung machine, which in that time, which replaces the heart and lungs and heart-lung surgery. But in the 50s, it was very, very new. And I found myself, the machine is very strange. It, it, it really became alive. And I won the state science fair with it. That wasn't my intent, but that's where it went. But the unique thing is people could feel its aliveness when I turned it on. It was actually pumping my force. So so I got more mystical as I went along. Not much happened in college again, but mystical. And believe it or not, as an athlete, I began having more and more mystical experiences of oneness while I was playing football and a little bit while I was playing tennis. I was in the frame where the dating Lou Hode, Roy Emerson. I don't know if you even remember those names. Do you know who I'm talking about? Tennis players? Very famous? No. In Australia. Okay. That's why I'm mentioning it. So wild. Okay. But I would go into these mystical things. And again, no training, no background. And this got me interested in spiritual life is really the answer. And particularly the issue of death dealing with my brother's death. And it was only until, and I, I knew my teacher would be the one who would uh, help me understand the understanding of death. So in 1975, I met Swami Muktananda from India, a liberated being, and he had a lot of followers in Australia. I met a lot of Australians actually in India. And I received Shakyapat, which would be called the Descent of Grace. I woke in the Kundalini and I went into the nothing as I came out of it. A little voice rang out and said, there is no death for the self. And then I realized that the body dies, but the self doesn't. Now, you can be told that a thousand times, but it doesn't make much difference until you experience it. So that was a huge mystical awakening and got me more than interested in the spiritual path, more actively. 
And so I spent the next seven years on and off, mostly in India, meditating about six hours a day, chanting four and a half hours a day, really intensely involved. And in that process, uh, Muktananda and my other guru, Swami Prakashananda, kind of acknowledged me as a wag, you know, free, liberated, however we want to talk about it. I kind of joke, I'm the liberated vegan from Eden. We don't have that many vegans talking about liberation, as you probably know. So that's how I got started. Now, in the process, in 1975, in that same meditation that gave me the mystery of death, another voice rang out and said, you should learn to eat and live in a way that supports the unfolding of the Kundalini energy. Well, I didn't even know what Kundalini was, actually. This is my very first real meditation. Although I've been meditating again for years and years, kind of unofficially, so to speak. And it said you should learn to eat and live in a way that supports the spiritual energy, also known as Kundalini. And that's how I began my more explicit journey into veganism and to live foods. That was in 1973. And by 1983, I was clear that the most powerful diet for spiritual life was a live food diet, live food vegan diet, and wrote my first book, Spiritual Nutrition and Rainbow Diet. So that's kind of the history of how this unfolded. So there's kind of a destiny there. It was always in the background, always prodding at me, and I was a little slow to get it. So I didn't really get it until I was 33, although I was meditating fairly actively when I was 16. So that's kind of an overview of how it unfolded for me. It is an unusual path, but maybe we're, some of us are a little slow getting it, and my culture didn't really support that at all. So it, it maybe just had to happen in that kind of slow, gradual way. So you talk about whole person enlightenment. What is that? So once having really awakened and being acknowledged by my two enlightened teachers, Swami Prakashananda and Muktananda, I also had this other mission, you know, the live foods, holistic healing, you know, the whole vegan way of life, and looking at all of the lifestyle, because I'm also family therapist, psychiatrist. And so I began looking at every aspect. This is not really what's emphasized in India. They're only interested in Ahambrahmasma. I mean, I'm, I'm that. I'm only God. So I began, because of my life experience, to say, wait, wait, there's more to it than that. If you live a full lifestyle that supports the awakening which we call in India Sanatana Dharma, it actually accelerates it and builds the vessels so that you can better receive the energy when it's your time for the Kundalini to awaken and to wake up. So the whole person enlightenment is having every aspect of your being, your physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual, to be awake and not just the spiritual level. That's what whole person enlightenment is about, is, is that you're, you're at optimum light frequency in all those levels, physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual. Mm, sounds beautiful. So you spoke a little bit before about spiritual nutrition. What's that? As I, as a came to me studying in 1975, it's eating in a way that supports the unfoldment of the spiritual energy, and in specific, the kundalini, which is or yogic term for the the spiritual energy within us. That's inherently who we are. Now, and it's just eating the way it supports it. It's not eating for beauty. It's not eating for strength. It's not eating for flexibility or endurance or longevity. It's eating to enhance your spiritual life eating to become a superconductor of the divine. Now, it's also, as I saw, it's a very powerful way to actually amplify every level of your life. So here I am at 75 cycles around the sun, and compared to where I was playing American football and at 20 years old, so that's 55 years later, I could do 
70 push-ups, maybe seven pull-ups. Now, 55 years later, on my 75th birthday, I did 300 push-ups. Could have done more, but I didn't want to stress my body. And I'm up to 90 pull-ups. So I am stronger. I'm more flexible. When I was playing football, I couldn't even touch my toes. Now I can put my palms on the ground, could sit through full lotus for long periods of time. So with a chronological age on this diet, I become more flexible, stronger, and with more endurance. So what we're seeing is the ramifications of this on the physical plane are very, very powerful. Because I've been on it for a while. It's not like I tried it for a year and, oh, yeah, it works. I'm talking, you know, 45 years on this diet. So it really does work. Now, that's that's kind of my point. Now, emotionally, mentally, the research is very clear. My own students, you know, there's a, a life of diet. You're going to decrease depression by 400%, anxiety by 300%, more mental clarity, more strength of mind and a variety of other things that happens, you know, on the physical level. But emotional level and mental level are definitely enhanced on this live food vegan diet. Okay, you're clear, you're more creative, and again, you're you're more emotionally balanced. What I've observed with lots and lots of people here is that a life of diet enhances your production of your neurotransmitters and also balances them. And we look at the world today and people's neurotransmitters, their brain functions seriously out of balance. So the life food diet brings that back into balance. So that's actually a very, very important point is people will think about it that way. We are built, it all, it stimulates the enhancement of our neurotransmitters and balancing brain neurochemistry. Right. So you have been a live food vegan, which is is raw, predominantly raw, live food, organic vegan. 98%, And And you've done this for 45 years? Yes. Okay. So are you saying that if someone wants to obtain whole person enlightenment, that they have to be on that path? No, not exactly. But I am actually saying it, but whole person enlightenment is not the same, it's different than enlightenment, it's fuller, it's more complete, and it's more about balancing the ecology, balancing, you know, the the planet. As a vegan, what happens? Well, you're you're giving a teaching by eating low in the food chain. Just for example, I'll back up a second. What we know according to the EDC, the local, you know, the scientific community, 95 to 97% of the pesticides, herbicides, radiation is higher up in the food chain. In other words, in animals. Okay. And when you're eating lower on the food chain, you're getting significantly less pesticides, herbicides, and radiation. Now, what, how does that play out? Well, if you're a vegan breastfeeding mother, you'll have 1% of the pesticides and herbicides in your breast milk as a meat-eating mother. That's significant because pesticides and herbicides are neurotoxins. and The baby getting the breast milk is actually getting neurotoxins to the breast milk. Being a vegan, you're cutting that down by 99%. So that's one way of understanding it. Another way of understanding it is that the pesticides and herbicides have definitely been associated with decreased fertility. And what we're seeing now is for men around the world, not just the United States, around the world, which includes Australia, okay, is that the sperm counts are about half, about 50% of what they should be. Now, what that means is if it goes just a little bit lower, I think, I think, I can't remember for sure, it's 4.5 million sperm per cc, men become infertile. So we're right on the edge of infertility. We also know that, at least in the United States, measuring it, the fertility rate between 2007 and 2009 was the lowest in 30 years. So what I'm saying is that pesticides, herbicides, eating uh, you know higher in the food chain 
are somehow associated because of the pesticide nervicide with decreased fertility. Play it a little bit with a little humor, and we may be that the vegans are the ones that are going to populate the world because they're eating lower in the food chain. That's just one example of the ramifications of holistic veganism. The environment, vegan saves 1.5 million gallons of water a year, like a whole swimming pool, okay? We, we save an enormous amount of land. We're saving 12 to 29 times more resources and energy than a meteor. I mean, the differences are dramatic. So we're creating a significantly less stress on the planetary resources. Okay, that's pretty significant too. Also, when we go vegan, we release enough food to feed the world at least seven times over. There would be no food shortage in the world. That's important. So we're saving the ecology, we're feeding the people, we're creating, in a sense, a sense charity because we're creating abundance, and we're also decreasing death because when we take uh, studies, the main reason people actually go vegan is to stop animal cruelty. So we are stopping animal cruelty because we're not killing them. Now, there's a really powerful yogic statement in the Mahasmriti, and it basically says, if one eats, kills, slaughters, eats animals, they're not fit for liberation. That's a yogic teaching in the Vedas. So it all kind of comes together on that level. So we're, we're feeding people, we're basically starving to death, there would be no starvation. Right now, 29,500 to somewhere 40,000 kids starve to death each day because there is enough food. There would be food for everyone. doesn't mean we'll distribute it in a conscious way, but there would be food for everyone. So there's a holistic effect. Also, it supports spirituality. So that's part of what I call holistic veganism is we're, we're having an effect on, on physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual, but also on the total community, on the total ecology, on who gets food or who doesn't get food. And we're saving the resources of the planet. So that's like a holistic veganism that I'm talking about, internally and externally. Do you believe plants have life and consciousness? Yes. I think it's been proven. So I think it's a little bit more than a belief system. Secret Life of Plants pretty much proves that. What is the difference between plants and animals then? Well, animals have a soul, at least according to the biblical teachings. And because they have a soul, the Torah is saying we shouldn't be eating them. Okay? Plants have consciousness, but not necessarily a soul in the way we're talking about they have a subtle body and physical body awareness, but animals have an astral plane as do humans, and, and somewhere in there is the soul. So the, the, the biblical teachings really says, no, you shouldn't be eating any being with the soul. So, you know, there's a strong, strong biblical push for veganism, including Genesis 129, you know, what's your food? Here we are in Ghanaian, best possible place. What's your food? Well, you got the greens and grasses, you know, of the field and the fruit of the sea bearing tree. That's your food. It includes nuts and seeds. Really uncomplicated. It just happens to be a live food vegan diet. And that, in terms of biblically, you know, I know not everybody's into the Bible, but I want to make a point, is that as a statement was the first time in history that there was a spiritual statement about diet, which is a vegan diet, as, in a sense, the one world ultimate diet that's prescribed for the whole world. And so as we look into you know, the future, the vegan diet is really prescribed as the number one, as it, as a huge spiritual statement. That's the diet that's biblically prescribed for the whole world, and that's where we'll be going in the big picture. 
So it's quite profound. And then think about it. It's the first major statement in a kind of modern history where we're saying eat a vegan live food diet as the unifying diet. That's the template diet for the whole world as we reach into more liberated times. That's huge. Very huge. And you talk a lot about mind-body constitution and understanding our own mind-body constitution. How can we do that? And how do we personalize our diet for our particular mind-body constitution? So the first thing to understand is that this is a genetic thing. Chromosome 19. And on chromosome 19, there's places that say how much carbohydrate, how much protein, how much fat we should eat. So it actually comes from our genes. That's the first thing, okay? Just know it's not about somebody's opinion. Oh, a fruitarian diet's the best way to go. No, it's not like that. What is included in their genes is, is actually how much protein, how much fat, how much carbohydrate. Now, that being said, and knowing it's not opinion, the task is the second part of your question. What is that? Well, how do you figure it out? Okay, without a very expensive genetic test. So in my book, Conscious Eating and Rainbow Green Life Food Cuisine, and a little bit in There is a Cure for Diabetes, I give charts to figure it out. Okay? And I can go into, to, and I have 30 questions that, that help people get clear. Are you a person that needs more protein or less protein? I call it fast and slow oxidizers. Fast oxidizers need more protein. Slow oxidizers need less protein. Like I'm a person who really doesn't need much protein, maybe 10%. So there's three questions that would help. So the first question is, after you, when you sit down to eat, are you attracted primarily to the salad or you are primarily attracted to the protein part, you know, the nuts and seeds and sea pate. Primarily attracted to the salad, it's a suggestion that you're what we call a slow oxidizer and don't need that much protein. I'll explain that in a minute. What, what, how much protein are we talking about? Second question is, if you eat just the salad, okay, are you going to be hungry in the next hour or two, or are you going to be fine for the next four to six hours? If you're a person that's fine for the next four to six hours, most likely, again, you're a person that needs a lower protein diet, what we call slow oxidizer. If you're going to get hungry in an hour or two because you didn't get enough protein, you're a person that needs more protein in your diet. So that's your second question. And Well, those are the, let's say, the two main questions. The third question is, are you satisfied? You just eat a salad. Once we wipe our minds clean, are you physically satisfied with just eating a salad? Or do you, you feel unsatisfied and you need lots more nuts and seeds and seed pâtés? So if you're not satisfied with just a salad and you need those, then you're a person that needs more protein. Those are three kind of key questions. Now, next question is, well, how much protein do we need? It's a reasonable question, right? So there is in the research a pathway called the M, then capital T, capital O, capital R pathway. And it basically, they basically discovered that the optimum amount of protein is somewhere between 35 and 70 grams of protein a day. It's not a lot, but... If you're in that range, you're going to optimize the mTOR pathway. Now, what does that mean? Well, that's a pathway that supports anti-cancer and longevity. They're also really anti-diabetes. So a slow oxidizer, person needs less protein, is going to be closer to 35, 40 grams a day. A fast oxidizer is going to be closer to 70 grams a day. So it's not that much protein in general, right? But that's what we're talking about. That's the range. That's the optimal range of protein intake for longevity and for well-being and for anti-diabetes and for really anti-aging. So now I've given the range, 35 to 70, 
and a way to kind of distinguish whether you need more or less protein in your diet, which is the main thing. So if you need more protein, mostly you're going to need more fat, and you're going to need less carbohydrates. Now, when I say carbohydrates, I'm talking about leafy greens and sprouts and vegetables. I am not talking about junk food or sweets and things like that. Besides from that, it's all leafy greens. I don't eat a lot because I'm a soul oxidizer. I pretty much eat one meal with a little bit of goji greens in the morning, you know, one nice salad with a few nuts and seeds, you know, maybe around 2 o'clock. So I eat maybe at 7 or 8 in the morning, and then I'm not hungry. So I have to remind myself to eat, and then I eat very little in the evening. I may have a little bit of something, soup or green juice type thing in the evening. I try to keep hydrated, so how do you know you're hydrated if you're urinating every two hours? Okay, and so I try to make sure that that's happening. It's very, very important to be hydrated. So that kind of gives you kind of an, a very rough but very accurate overview. And now the second part is what is what I teach, and I'm going to say it this way, is we need a little trial and error. You can't just sit and do the math because there's also what we call mixed oxidizer. You're in the middle. You need, you know, not 70 grams of protein. Maybe you need 50 grams of protein. You need, you know, 30, 40% fat, 25, you know, 30% carbohydrate. So mixed oxidizer is in the middle of the spectrum. Our responsibility is to sit with trial and error and see what works for you. How do you know it's working? You feel satisfied. You feel energized. You feel good. That's how you know. It's not a theoretical thing. But once we get away with, there's one way to do it. You know, there's so many diets out there. And they confuse people because, well, there's a high-protein diet. And there's a low-protein, you know, fruit diet. But, you know, the people promoting are the ones that their genetics resonate with that. So a, a fruitarian is a person. It's an extremely slow oxidizer. They really don't need much protein. And it works for them. They're going to have more carbohydrates. But if you're a fast oxidizer who needs a lot more protein, then that diet won't work and throw you off. So the best way to do it is throw away the books about this is the best diet or that's the best diet and actually do the research on yourself. As I say, the, the interviews are in the books I mentioned, Rainbow Green, My Food Cuisine, and Trends Eating. And spiritual nutrition, rainbow diet, there's a cure for diabetes. There, there is a direction there in the questions that are asked. That way you can kind of get a good approximation and then move to trial and error. But at least you have a, an idea. Well, the test shows I'm, kind of, I'm more of a slow oxidizer. Don't need much protein. No, but how much protein do I need to feel good? How do you tell that? You got to trial and error. I will explain exactly in my own experimentation because life isn't as simple as i just said it never is, is it? and diet isn't it so i was doing pull-ups and, and i was kind of stuck at 25 pull-ups i wasn't getting anywhere and then i read that in their 40s and 50s men need to have less protein because a higher protein is going to quadruple the rate of cancer and double the rate of Mortality. Well, that's not so good. So, fine. But when I read it, I'm I'm 70. So it's like, oh, well, let's go to where the breakdown is. So at around 60, it turns out that men and probably women too, but the research is done on men, so I'm being a little bit. But I believe it's for women as well. Modifications, but that that piece hasn't been done. That research. Oh, they need more protein. So I decided, fine, let me try it because I'm, I'm stuck. I'm not moving. So I increased my protein just by a little bit. You know, maybe actually what it was is a tablespoon of blue-green algae. E3 life. That's all I did. Only change. Not a lot. And within two weeks, I was up to really 40 pull-ups and then up to random about 90 pull-ups. Simply by adding one tablespoon of blue-green algae. That's it. So the adjustments don't have to be so much, but we do have to adjust with age. 
Okay. We have to hydrate with age. I used to not drink so much. Okay. Then with age, we go into a little bit more vata, uh, tendency to imbalance everybody. Doesn't matter who they are. And so what do we have to do? We have to oily our skin. We have to drink more fluid and actually bring more salt in. Those are three big vata balancing. So what we're doing is adjusting with our age, what we call in Ayurvedic, our, our doshas. So we're constantly adjusting. We constantly have to think about what we're doing. There's not one way. So we have, we're born with, in the Ayurvedic with nine different constitutions, but three simple ones, Kapha, Pitta, Vata. I won't necessarily go into them in the moment because I'm trying to make it on the point. And from zero to 12, zero to puberty, whenever that is, is more kapha. We want to eat the balanced kapha. And then from puberty until in our society, maybe 40, 45, we're balancing pitta because there's a fiery energy, fiery teenager. And then after that, we're balancing vata. So we have to keep reorganizing our diet to fit where we are in that story, in our life history. In addition, you're in a hot climate, you're going to eat to decrease pitta. So you're going to have not-so-spicy live food. Live food is best for balancing pitta, for coming pitta. And if it's raining, then you're going to stay away from a lot of salty food because that aggravates kapha, and kapha is aggravated by rain. So we're always adjusting. I actually have to think about what we're doing. But when we do, the benefits are great because we're always at optimum. That's the key. So that's why I wrote all these you know, books in the conscious eating is helping people learn how to balance their doshas, copy a bit about it, and balance low protein and understand that we do have unique constitution. There's 20 to 30,000 different genes. And that gives us about 200,000 different gene variations. So it's really good to take the point that we're not a cow who just eats grass, but we are very unique individuals, and we really need to sort out our unique constitutional diet. And there is no one diet for everybody. I love that you've said that because we are all so unique. We live in different climates. We're at different phases in our life. We're different ages. And I love that you said there's no one way of eating. So if you are an advocate of this vegan lifestyle, do you not believe that everyone should be vegan? Okay. So that is where the discussion has to go. You have to ask that question. So you did. Good for you. You're, you're, you're tuned in. So, okay. This applies to everyone, what I just said, right? You have to balance your doshas. You have to eat the balance. Okay? Now we go to another page, which is vegan and I'm going to say live food. And that's as distinct from eating meat. Okay? My wife's in New Zealand, so I'll say, you know, sheep. Okay? Mutton. You know, so I'm kind of joking a little bit. But the fact is, okay, what's the best overall, and I'm going to say cuisine, okay? not the diet, not your macronutrient balance. So we're moving now from macronutrient, that's out. We've already discussed that, right? Carbohydrate, protein, and fat, right? We just discussed that. Now we're talking about what is basically the best cuisine. Is it going to be vegetarian? Is it going to be vegan? Is it going to be a meat-centered diet? That's a pretty important question. And the first thing we need to answer is, can we sustain ourselves as vegans? No meat, fish, chicken, dairy, or eggs. And I think the answer is in, in this modern world, absolutely sustainable. No problem. What about the B12? Well, the truth is, as I point out in my books, meat eaters and vegans, at the level we need, all need a B12 supplement. What's the difference? Well, if we need 200 nanograms, which is the minimum, minimum dose, about 40% of meat eaters are going to be deficient in B12. And at the upper range, maybe 80, 90%. Okay, fine. Now, when we need 
400 to 450 nanograms, which is optimum on a B12. Okay, we, we kind of understand what's optimum. Then about 80% of meat eaters are not going to get enough B12. About 90% of vegans are not going to get enough B12. We make our own B12. It's a little sophisticated. I don't think it can help our discussion to explain why some vegans don't need to have B12. But there are some vegans don't need it. It's the enterohepatic circulation. We're making B12 in our colon, but we absorb it through our circulation back, back into our milk. So now, first understand that meat eaters and vegans basically are going to need B12. So I take away that distinction, okay? All vegans have to have B12. No, everybody doesn't. So now we have to say is sustainable. So in my book, Conscious Parenting, I cite a study done by some of my students, and we found that vegan mothers raising vegan children. So vegan mothers give birth to very healthy children, who I'm going to summarize it quickly here. I measured, we measured a height and weight, that the, the vegan children are in the upper one-third, so upper one-third to upper 20% of optimum height and weight. That's at birth. And then we follow them for the next four years, and pretty much they stayed in the upper third. Sometimes, depending at year one, maybe they were, they're in the upper 12%. But when you sum it all up, vegan children are at the top one-third of height and weight. That's very good. That's very good. So that's, you know, assuming a, a rounded vegan diet. So we know then children don't suffer from it. They have to have their B12 supplement, just like the meat-eating children really should have. Now, and we progress beyond four, and we're seeing long-term, what do we know? Vegan, we don't have data on life, but vegan people live longer. The men live about seven years longer, about 7.2 years longer, and the women live 4.4 years longer. I'm not sure why there's a difference, but... That's kind of a distinction there. Because generally, women live longer, but we're talking about the difference between a vegan woman and a meat-eating woman. So they're going to live 4.4 years longer than a meat-eating woman. So we know that it helps longevity. We also know that vegans, by and large, are significantly healthier. We know that. It's a fact. They're going to have one, 32% less heart disease. They're going to have uh, at least 13% to 20% less cancer. We're going to have 35 to 50% less diabetes, and the list goes on. 26% of meteors have kidney disease versus 2% of, of vegans. So no question about it. Vegans live longer and are healthier. So we start to answer the question based on the actual research that's out there. And I think that answers the question. Now, we just have to do what we're talking about, adjust with age and do what we need. And my experience is meat eaters and vegans all need some levels of supplementation, and not based on being a vegan, but based on pretty much our toxicity in the world today. We use up a whole lot of antioxidants. Now, I'll mention one other word. It's called organic. And organic food has about 88% more antioxidants and about 25% more nutrients. And that's multiple studies combined together make that statement. So I want to add the word organic in there. It is actually quite important. So does that kind of answer the question you asked? Yes. Yeah, yep. That's great. And I agree with the organic. You know, there are so many chemicals and pesticides and junk sprayed on our produce that we really do either need to be growing it ourselves or making sure you're going to the local organic farmer and getting your produce from a trusted source. Yes, it's very important. And particularly the GMO issue, got to have a trusted source. I'm not sure how it is in Australia. I know they've allowed GMOs in New Zealand. What's the status in Australia? No, not here, thank goodness. But, you know, like you never... You don't know. You don't know what's around the corner. 
And, you know, the more that we get out of the supermarkets and go to the farmers markets and the more that we, you know, we're voting with our dollar every time we hand over money, we are saying that we believe in that big corporation, you know, and something that I'm really mindful of is conscious consumerism. And every time we spend money, we are saying we believe in it. So I really want to inspire people to either grow some of your own produce, you know, even if it's just starting with some herbs, if you live in an apartment, just getting a little herb box, you know, and then going to the organic farmer's markets, I'm sure everyone listening has access to, you know, some sort of local farmer's market and going there and and meeting the farmer and voting with your dollar. It's really, really important. Super important. I'm real glad you said that. It's super important because the result of that is what's actually happening. Organic farmers are increasing all over the world because they have so contaminated our, our food, food sources with the GMO and pesticides or pesticides. It's actually really critical. So how do we do it? We support our organic farmers. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe it costs a little bit more, but not in the long run because if you're healthy, then it's not it's going to cost you less. Yeah, yeah. So what do you attribute? I mean, you have written 11 internationally acclaimed books. What do you attribute your success to? Interesting question. I actually never, ever thought I'd be writing any books. So let's start there. And a friend of mine, many, 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 many years ago, before I written any books, he said, well, you're going to write a whole lot of books. And I said, no way. <laughs> okay, so that's where we have to start with. Okay? It's never been an aspiration of mine. But after this vision in 1975, I realized, okay, no one is talking about spiritual nutrition. They're also talking about veganism is good for your health. Well, it is good for your health. And a little bit, people talked about the ecology. So at that time, the whole idea of veganism and life with veganism as supporting spiritual life wasn't much of a discussion. And so I felt I have to get that out. So my, you know, my classic in 1986 was you know, rainbow green life with cuisine and the rainbow diet. Okay, so then, okay, we needed more of this information. As you can tell, I'm pretty detailed and try to be very comprehensive. It's just my style, you know, biochemist, you know, published research in biochemistry and biophysics. Okay, so that's why I wrote Conscious Eating. Well, because the question is what to do, what to do. Well, I had to spend some time figuring out what to do. People were saying this is the only way to eat or that's the only way to eat. And I inherently knew that wasn't the way very simple. It was just people's opinions and biases. So I began looking at the Constitution. I began looking at the Ayurvedic part. And so, oh, I got to get it out. So it's been more that way. I'm actually, this is my 13th book now. It's a spiritual biography, autobiography. It's called Dying Into Nothing. I'm in my fifth edition as we speak. I'm working on it now. Not why we're talking, but now. <laughs> and and then I have at least one more book after that, which is Spiritual Fasting. Mm. And it's a lot of work for me to write. I mean, writing, per se. So it's a, a challenge, and I guess that's what God gave me to do. It was not my attention. It's actually not my interest, but I feel it's my dharma. It's my right action. Put it that way. Mm, beautiful. Yeah. Now, what's bringing you the most joy in your life right now? Is is really the inner world, the self, static beauty of the inner self. Beautiful. And that's always there. And I meditate, you know, twice a day. It's just always part of that. The other thing I'm spending more time with, and I hope more time as things go on, is the humanitarian work, you know, bringing these teachings to Africa. We have 12 programs in 18 countries. 
Africa, Mexico, Brazil, different places. So I'm doing more of the humanitarian work and decreasing the amount of clients I see so I can do that. And that's why I'm kind of not doing programs anymore, the 21-day diabetes program, is I've got to get this out to the world. People need support doing it. We're also promoting organic, organic farming around the world. Okay. So we're stimulating kind of local-based organic, organic farming. So those are kind of bigger projects that I'm involved with, trying to make things, making the change in the world in, in that way. Beautiful. What are you working on or would like to improve within yourself at the moment? Is there anything? Mostly I'm working actually it's within myself but outside is this transition from running the center per se to doing what I just said. You know, humanitarian work, getting things out to the world like what we're doing now. Okay, it's really important that I'm able to support, you know, life with vegans in Australia. It's a really good thing. You're doing a really good thing where you are. I appreciate that. So it's kind of I'm in that transition, and so it's it's an important learning curve and a balancing curve. So that's, I want to say, the biggest challenge right now is making that transition, making it work economically as, as well as spiritually and, and so forth. Beautiful. Now, let's pretend you have a magic wand and you could put one book in the school curriculum of every single high school around the world. Besides your almost 13 books, let's presume they're already in the school curriculum, what one book would you recommend? Well, it's a, it's a good question because high school around the world is, is not too spiritually oriented. So I, I would have to go back to like conscious eating would be probably the most important book because it looks at all the aspects. It really is a holistic view of of it. So I probably would do that because it's also a textbook and it's a reference book and it includes the consciousness, but it likes the full spectrum. So I probably would put that one in, in all the schools. All my books are not exactly written for high school, as you well know. But if I'm going to put one book in, it would be conscious eating. And what about besides your book? Is there any other books? Like just one other book besides yours that you would put in? There's so many really good books out there. In, in a way, given the what's going on, I probably I think about Will Tuttle. Do you know who Will Tuttle is? What did he write? Well, he it's called the Peace Diet, and it's basically a vegan diet, but explains you know how it helps bring peace in the different levels. And we can link to that in the show notes as well as all of your books. Yeah, I would probably think that one because it's all it's simpler and it's not not so much on life food, but it's more on the veganism, you know. So right, and it's yeah simpler, beautiful. But that would be, I think, a good book to kind of support. To me, I don't need people to be vegan, but in terms of the world kind of mission, as I mentioned, it is the prime biblical directive. It's the prime diet, you know, as the as the one world diet. That's where we need to go if we're going to uplift the world on every level. So I, I put veganism at, at kind of a top of the list of teaching. More than live food, more live food is more sophisticated. You have to be more sophisticated to even be interested. You have to have a little bit of a background. Vegan is broader, and, and it's a huge movement expanding in the world. The U.S., we've gone from 0.5 to uh, 2.5% of the population, which is a five-fold increase. Some places, the biggest, of course, is India, but Israel is second at 13%, and Brazil is third. Brazil is really high. It's like 12% vegan, 10 to 12% vegan. I teach a lot there, and so I'd like to see that expand millions of people because it has a more explicit opportunity to change the world. 
to upgrade the world, to upgrade the web of life on the world. Mm, Great. Now let's talk about your day and how your day looks, and in particular, your morning routine. I'm fascinated with hearing about how people prime themselves for the day. So can you talk us through your morning routine? Yeah. So I get up around 5.30. I got up a little earlier today, but by and large, let's say 5.30. And I do a few things, and then I will do my prayers which I usually do barefoot outside on the ground for where I live. It works. And then I do pranayama, breathing exercises. And then I meditate. My wife is usually doing the pranayama and meditating with me. So it's a a nice connection that way. And then I will do my special, I call tri-yoga and often exercises, activating all the chakras and the tree of life and for me it's a special thing but it's an energetic yoga it's a yoga that activates energies not that it's energetic you know but it does include handstands and headstands and things like that and then i usually go to work so that takes me by 9 9 15 i'm ready to to see clients or do whatever I'm supposed to do. Like tomorrow I have an interview at 8, 8 o'clock in the morning. But that's kind of my basic routine. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing. I have three little rapid-fire questions for you now. In your opinion, what is one of the most important things that we can do today for our health? Love ourselves enough to want to heal ourselves. Beautiful. And what is one of the most important things that we can do for more wealth in our life? So more abundance in all areas of our life. I have more of a karmic point of view. What I suggest is we live the six foundations in the sevenfold piece. Maybe I'll kind of review that because then that sets the tone. And then to me, we're guided to what we're supposed to do about the issues of wealth. And it's something, you know, people think they earn this or they earn that. It's not quite that way in my understanding. It's more of a karmic thing. So I suggest the 80% live food, you know, 100% vegan diet. I suggest fasting twice a year. I sit and second step is I do the pranayama, yoga, or tai chi, qigong, things like that. Third step is service and charity. People will say, well, give some service and you get fivefold back. That's a business deal. That's not charity. You give because you give, not because you expect to get anything back. Okay. Fourth is what I call working with a spiritual teacher if we're ready. And in yoga, terms varegya, equal vision, seeing God, equaling everyone. And Viveka being able to see the difference between the temporal reality and the cosmic reality. Fifth, as much meditation and prayer chanting as possible. And the sixth, which is a little specialized, is get as much Shakti pot to send its grace. Since I've been powered by my by Muktananda to be a Shakti pot, you know, master and so forth. So that's six. Now the sevenfold path is peace with the body, peace with the mind, which is meditating, peace with the body is the diet, peace with the family, so paying attention to all our relations and understand that relations are there, relationships are there for us to grow spiritually, not always so easy. That's why we teach sacred relationship. It's really an important to, to capacity for intimacy, which Part of what there's a breakdown in the world today because people aren't putting that as a value. They're getting a little more intimate with their computers. And it's really important in the level of human interaction. And then peace with the community, we have a variety of communities that we live in, peace with culture, and from a Native American way and from the Torah way, we talk about peace with the rock people, okay, peace with the plant people, peace with the Animal people, you know, animal beings in peace with humans. So it's a kind of multiple levels of peace 
in a kind of whole more ecological view, peace with all cultures. And then what I call peace with the ecology, spiritual ecology, and finally peace with God. You put those all together, it creates a lifestyle that creates a sort of a philosophy. Now, in that context, when we're living in harmony, which is really the best we can do, whatever else happens, whether we get liberated, whether we get wealth or don't get wealth, all that is just part of what's going on. The key is don't think about fairness because nothing is fair. Everyone's unique, just like we all need a different diet. We need to understand that we all have our karmas, we all have our difficulties, we all have our things that we have to deal with, and that's unique for us. And so being at peace with what's happening to us is what we need, and what's happening for somebody else is what they need. So wealth is, you know, part of that whole picture. Who knows? So we just have to do our part, and then whatever compensation comes from that, wealth comes from that, is what is. So I don't try to, to accumulate wealth per se, if that makes sense. We're given what we need to do the work we need to do. And so if we're aligned with our dharma or right livelihood and right action world, we'll be given the resources to make that happen. Absolutely. That's how I see it. So I never encourage people to think about money in the way that we're talking. It's like you have a dharma, you have this, money shows up to do it. And if it doesn't, then maybe that's not what you're supposed to be doing. Mm, Absolutely. You know, and, and also about liberation. It's like, don't make that the goal. Create a lifestyle that supports your spiritual life, your mental life, your, your emotional life, your physical life. That's the holistic liberation approach. And just live that way. That's where the six foundations, seven people, and then whatever happens, happens. But you're living in balance, whatever's going on. And it doesn't matter what happens. Wealth comes good. Wealth doesn't come okay. You have to live with that. And so forth and so on. Liberation comes, liberation doesn't come. Spiritual growth will automatically come living this way. How much is according to whatever your destiny is. So that's how I see it. That's a long answer to a short question. (laughs) I love it. I totally agree with you. And what is one of the most important things that we can do today for more love in our life? Love yourself enough to want to heal yourself. The, The mystery to love is... Loving yourself, and I don't mean egoically, loving the self of all, okay? Not the small self, the big self, which is within all of us. We go in, the more we contact us, that's the real source of love. And when we're connected to that real source of love, then it resonates in other people for them to contact their real source of love, and then that love also is amplified. But we're the source of love. For ourselves, and again, not in an egoic way, but when you are constantly in touch with the truth of who you are, there's just this non-causal love, non-causal peace, non-causal oneness, non-causal compassion, which which is who we are, truly who we are as human beings. And that is the big source. And then it resonates with other people that then amplifies coming back to you. Yeah, beautiful. Absolutely. This has been so beautiful to connect with you. And thank you so much for sharing so much of your wisdom with us. Is there anything else you would like to share or any last parting words of wisdom or anything that I didn't ask you that you want to talk about? You asked a lot of good questions, but the ultimate message is go within, experience the big self, who we are. And as your source of love and peace and compassion, and know that God dwells within us as us, connecting to God within all of creation and within everybody else. That's the essential task we all have. And may everyone be blessed with success and knowing that truth. Beautiful. Now, before we go, I'd love to know, how can I and the listeners serve you today? What can we do to serve you? Well, 
Okay. That's a, no one's ever asked that question. That's a great question. The more we can spread the message we were just talking about, the more people can read my you know books and spread the message. I'm doing about three Facebooks a week, tuning in and sharing because they're a little, you know, they're more spiritual and I have two, you know, nutritional. The more that gets out there, the more we spread the teachings. And that's how we can best serve in the big picture. We will definitely do that. Thank you so much, Gabriel. It's been an absolute pleasure hearing your beautiful words. And I just love a lot of your messages about going inward and really loving your higher self. And that's definitely what I believe. And I'm just so grateful for all of your words. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for writing all of these beautiful books and the work that you're doing. I'm very grateful that we've been able to connect. That's good. And people want further information or tune into my Facebook, it's drcousins.com. Yes. We can link to all of your books and your website and everything in the show notes so people can come and check you out. Perfect. Thank you so much. Blessings to you and and for the great work that you're doing and may you be blessed with continual expansion of your message and peace be with you. Wow, what an interesting conversation. I had always wanted to hear someone's perspective on whether plants have a soul or a consciousness. And so I am really glad that he has finally shared that with us. Very, very interesting. So I got a lot out of this conversation. And if you did too, please subscribe and leave me a five-star review in iTunes or on your podcast app, because that means that we can inspire even more people together. And don't forget to tell me on social media, either on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, who you would like me to have on the show. And for everything that we mention in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes. And that is over at melissaambrosini.com forward slash 129. And you can also listen to all my other episodes there too. And just a reminder, if you haven't got a copy of my latest book, Open Wide, A Radically Real Guide to Deep Love, Rocking Relationships and Soulful Sex, all you have to do is head to melissaambrosini.com forward slash open wide to get your copy now. And whilst you're there, you can also get access to my free open wide video masterclass that Nick and I created for you. Everyone is loving it so far. So head on over there and get access for free now. And if you want to be the review of the week for next week, make sure you head on over to iTunes and leave me a review. And before I go, I just wanted to say, Thank you so much for being here, for wanting to be the best and shiniest version of yourself and for showing up today for you. You rock. Now, if there's someone in your life that you can think of that would really benefit from this episode, please be an angel and share it with them right now. You can take a screenshot, share it on your social media, email it to them, text it to them, do whatever you have got to do to get this in their ears. And until next time, don't forget that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word.